0: From Three Uncanny Four, this is Viral, a show about COVID-19 and the ways
1: it could impact our lives. I'm your host, TJ Raphael. And I'm reporter Emily Saul. Our goal is simple. We want to be the place to learn everything you need to know about coronavirus. We'll give you the news, we'll place that news in context, and we'll have conversations with smart, knowledgeable people. And this is all to keep you safe, keep you
0: sane when everyone seems to be losing it. And also, we've learned this whole thing with the coronavirus actually is a really fascinating story, or maybe a bunch of different fascinating stories. Today on Viral, first, the news and the basics. What is this thing and what can we do about it? And then we'll explain why financial markets are freaking out and whether or not you should be worried about your economic future. Emily, before we dive in, give me the latest. I know the figures are constantly changing, but as of now, where do things stand?
1: So the numbers are shifting hour to hour. But as of Monday, March 2nd, it's 4.10 p.m. Eastern time. And here's where we're at. COVID-19 is officially in the United States, with at least 91 reported cases. Six people have died, all in Washington state. Over the weekend, officials reported the first cases in New York, Rhode Island, and Florida. Worldwide, there are some 90,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19. Of that number, about half of the people diagnosed have recovered, but more than 3,000 people have died. Meanwhile, U.S. stocks rose Monday and the global market stabilized following the chaos last week, which has been described as one of the worst weeks since the 2008 financial crisis.
0: And that's the bit we're most interested in today. So in a moment, our editor Adam Davidson, who created NPR's Planet Money, is going to come in and explain how coronavirus might affect your wallet. But let's back up a minute to understand COVID-19's broader impact on our lives. We have to first understand a few key things, right? So, Emily, quickly, let's walk through some basic questions a lot of people seem to have. Number one being, what is coronavirus?
1: So coronavirus is actually a general term that references an entire family of viruses that are known to cause upper respiratory tract illness.
0: Yeah, that's right. There isn't just one coronavirus. We're talking specifically about the virus known as SARS-CoV-2. That's the virus. It creates a specific disease called COVID-19.
1: So there are seven known types of human coronaviruses. Most of them cause mild illness. And the majority of us in our lifetime have actually had one of these other forms of coronavirus. We have just thought of it as the common cold.
0: It's that regular thing that knocks me out every winter.
1: Exactly. So we've all, at some point in our lives, probably had a coronavirus.
0: Yeah, but there's a reason why this time around we're calling it COVID-19 instead of just the common cold.
1: So it's only when a disease becomes a big deal that it gets a name. Um, In the past, you may have heard are SARS or MERS. Those are cousins of COVID-19. And those are instances in which a coronavirus became such a big deal that it was named.
0: Yeah, SARS and MERS were pretty big deals when they hit. You may remember that SARS caused a lot of panic back in 2002, 2003. It was a real terror, but it was largely contained to Southeast Asia. And MERS, on the other hand, was even scarier. It killed a little over 30% of people who got it, but it also was contained to the Middle East.
1: Right. So... Uh, Almost every year, there's a flu or more than one that goes around, but it's only occasionally that one gets to be big enough and scary enough that it actually gets its own name.
0: Yeah, I actually loved learning this over the weekend, that the WHO actually has this whole process for naming diseases.
1: Right. So for the nerds in us, this is actually really fascinating. Uh, So three weeks ago, on February 11th, there's this committee at the World Health Organization. They call themselves the International Committee on Taxonomy of Viruses. And so uh, these men and women got together in order to assign this novel coronavirus a name. There are rules, though, like you can't just go out and name a virus after your enemy or your cousin who continuously pranks you that you're trying to get back at. These rules basically say that the disease name can't single out a country or a region or a specific species of animal.
0: Right. So no more Spanish flu or swine flu because naming illnesses after a country could make people not want to go to that country for years after. And it could stir up xenophobia from people who are from there. Or naming it after an animal could lead to the mass slaughter of that animal for no good reason.
1: And, I mean, there's other criteria as well. The WHO says the name should be pronounceable in many different languages. So presumably, following lots of brainstorming, this panel came up with the very boring name, the coronavirus disease of 2019, or COVID-19. Okay, so we know
0: at least a bit what this thing is. It's a new strain of coronavirus that creates a new kind of disease called COVID-19. So now, big question number
1: two, how bad is COVID-19? For most people who get it, COVID-19 is not that bad. Based on the data we have now, and we'll say it again and again and again, the data we're working with is new and developing. More than 80% of people who get COVID-19 will experience something like a regular cold or a mild flu. Coughing, fever, sometimes diarrhea. Yeah, but I mean, Emily,
0: I know that it's not like that for everyone, right?
1: Yeah, for some. Unfortunately, for people over 65 or for those living with otherwise weakened immune systems, it could be far more serious or even fatal. Early estimates of the death rate have been all over the place. And that's because to know the death rate of something, you need to know how many people have had the disease and how many people have died from the disease.
0: Yeah, that might seem simple enough, but so far, most of these cases have been in China. And many epidemiologists believe China actually undercounted the number of people who got the disease. They just weren't counting all the folks with mild cases. So in China, the death rate is high, close to 4%. But if a lot of mild cases weren't actually counted, the death rate is way too high.
1: But in neighboring South Korea, which has a more advanced healthcare system and more trusted numbers, the death rate is far lower, with numbers such as just twenty-six deaths out of some forty two hundred cases, which is just a touch higher than the normal death rate for any year's flu. So again, the mantra of this episode
0: for everyone listening, we don't know enough yet to know where this is going. As someone famously said, there are no known knowns and there are unknown knowns. But We are going to stay on top of this.
1: And it's not that we don't know. The world doesn't know. Scientists are trying to figure it out right now. And one of those things we're trying to figure out? A vaccine. Right now, there is no vaccine
0: specific to COVID-19.
1: That's true. However, some hope. Rest assured, scientists all over the world are frantically scrambling to try and figure out a vaccine. And there are some anti-malarial drugs, an anti-retroviral HIV med and a drug originally designed to combat Ebola that are currently being tested on small groups of people. Meanwhile, China's vice minister of science and technology has also said they expect their first COVID-19 vaccine to be ready for clinical trials by the end of April. So
0: now that we have our first cases in the U.S., a lot of people have been wondering what we should all be doing so we don't get COVID-19. I personally read a lot over the weekend about washing my hands and not touching my face. I didn't realize there were so many different ways to wash your hands. (laughs) And touch your face. Yeah, (laughs) right. But people have also been talking about stockpiling masks. And I found out that that's actually not such a great idea. The CDC doesn't even recommend that people wear a face mask if they're healthy, at least not right now.
1: Right. So this reaction makes total sense. We want to do something. We want to be proactive. And it feels proactive to put a mask on our face. But it, it just doesn't work. COVID-19 is really small. It's around 0.1 or 0.2 microns in size. To give you perspective, human hair is about 75 microns. So COVID-19 is actually smaller than the weave on your average surgical mask. That's like trying to stop a flood with a chain-link fence.
0: Yeah, surgical masks were actually originally developed to keep surgeons from breathing on their patients during operations, to keep things in rather than keep them out. That's why your dentist, you know, you've seen that, Emily, straps it on when they're going into your mouth. It's so that they're not breathing on you.
1: Right. And there are fancier respirator masks available, if you imagine a painter's mask, for reference, but healthcare providers need them more than you the average person do unless you're a healthcare provider so don't rush out and buy those either just to make yourself feel safer they present their own host of problems they can be really hot they're hard to breathe in and they're actually really tricky to put on correctly and they don't work if they're not put on correctly so just don't bother.
0: Well, Emily, when we think about prevention, there's been a lot of talk about alcohol-based rubs, a.k.a. hand sanitizers. I know a lot of people carrying them all the time. I actually have a tiny bottle in my purse. But almost every pharmacy in my neighborhood is pretty much out of hand sanitizers
1: now because of coronavirus. But this whole issue can be pretty tricky, too, right? Right. So a lot of viruses, according to scientists, are actually pretty resistant to hand sanitizers. But COVID-19 is something that's called an envelope virus, meaning it has this little coating around it that actually can be attacked by alcohol-based rubs. But the rub has to be at least 60 to 90 percent alcohol.
0: Yeah, and that's really important to note uh, because so it might feel good to grab any hand sanitizer in sight, but we should actually be checking the bottles to make sure they're actually strong enough. I know some of my friends use natural ones because they have sensitive skin or maybe they smell better, but that could actually be less effective.
1: So it boils down to read the bottle. The FDA has even written a letter to the makers of Purell saying that the company needs to stop claiming that their product can help guard against other viruses such as Ebola or the flu.
0: So the takeaway is you can use hand sanitizers,
1: but also wash your
0: hands frequently.
1: So when we talk about a virus, we tend to think of it as something that needs to be killed. But that's technically wrong. A virus is not a living thing that can be killed. It needs to be removed. So handwashing is important because you're trying to physically remove this virus from your hands. So you have to make sure to aggressively lather, get the backs of your hands, get under your nails, and make sure you're washing your hands for long enough. Sing something like happy birthday or another favorite tune before you rinse.
0: Yeah, a lot of people are going to take preventative measures, but... I know that people, even if they do, they're still scared. And if they do get sick, they're going to feel like they should be tested. But that's
1: not 100 percent right. If you're exhibiting symptoms, if you're coughing or if a fever has you just totally knocked out or if you're having shortness of breath, then call your doctor and see what they say.
0: Yeah. If your doctor does suspect that you might have COVID-19, they would do what's called a respiratory panel. So a doctor would swab your nose with a little Q-tip and then they would send that sample to the CDC.
1: Right. So the CDC has been controlling access to these tests and was only testing people known to have traveled to or had contact with people who had traveled to high risk areas like China. But as we see more community transmission, i.e. cases seeming to crop up out of nowhere, this is probably going to change. Yeah, and I know that a lot of people are wondering if we're prepared for that. So the answer is sort of. Alex M. Azar, so he's the U.S. Health and Human Services Secretary, he said on Sunday that the United States does have enough diagnostic kits to test at least 75,000 people and that more are on the way. So on the whole, for any one person, the virus, even if they get it, will probably not be a huge event. However, the math, when we drill down into it, is still making people uneasy. Yeah, I mean, if the death rate for COVID-19
0: remains around 3%, That means that 97% of people who get the illness will be fine. But 3% of a lot of people is a lot of people. If 50 million people in the United States get the flu each year, and if COVID-19 follows the same spread, we could
1: see about a million and a half additional deaths. And worldwide, that could translate to tens or hundreds of millions of deaths. However, it is highly unlikely that the average person will die from the disease but your life is likely to change, a little or a lot, in the next few months because of it. Yeah, general unease
0: and fear, that can really mess a lot of stuff up. Yes, we can and should be planning, but really we should just be staying calm because panicky overreactions can affect politics and business. And we're already beginning to see the impacts on the economy and trade. That's next, stay with us. So, as we mentioned at the top of the show, the stock market has taken a hit as COVID-19 has continued to spread. And over the weekend, it got me thinking, Could this whole thing trigger another recession? And it just so happens that we have our editor, Adam Davidson, the co-creator of NPR's Planet Money here with us. Adam spent so much time reporting on the economy. Hey, Adam. Hey, guys. So um, let's talk about the stock market and the economy. I think everyone is really freaking out right now as stocks continue to tumble. I personally don't have any stocks, but I know that this could affect my wallet in a big way. So can you walk us through that? Let's start with the stock market, since everybody seems to be talking about that.
2: So this is something I have said religiously for a long, long time. Don't pay any attention to the stock market. The stock market is designed to Have huge swings from time to time. And this particular swing is is particularly uninformative. So um, I I think it might be helpful to explain. Economists talk about risk and uncertainty and differentiate them as two very different things. So a risk is a bet that you could make a calculation about. So we could sit here and analyze, you know, how is Apple going to perform in the next, three months? Or what's the likelihood that the Federal Reserve will lower or increase interest rates? Something like that, where there's a lot of data. We might come to different opinions, but it's grounded in some form of objective knowledge. That's risk. That is what fuels financial markets. It's what fuels investing and business in general. Then there's uncertainty, at least as economists define it. That's when you just don't have any frame of reference to even know how to make a bet. Uncertainty appears occasionally when there are major disruptions, not just to any one company, but to the very nature of thinking about how companies might succeed.
0: The whole system. The
2: whole system. So with COVID-19, with coronavirus, we don't know how many people will get it. We don't know how many of those people will die. We don't know where it'll spread. We don't know how it'll spread. We don't know how governments will react and we don't know how that will affect business because, after all, all the stock market cares about is future profits. That's really all they care about. They don't care about death for death's sake. And we do have reason to believe that there will likely be disruptions to almost every kind of company. But we have absolutely no idea, looking at any one company or any, any one country or any, any one area – How do you even think about how much? Will Apple computers, will IBM, will Sony Music make more money next year or less money next year? How much more? How much less? How will the spread? We have no idea. So this particular stock market reaction is less a reaction to them knowing something we don't know about how bad things are going to get, and more them entering a phase that is particularly terrifying for them, which is we don't know how to even think about what we don't know.
0: And I think that one way this could affect a lot of average people is by seeing things not on their shelves, by not being able to get products. And from my understanding, that's an effect on the supply chain. Is that right?
2: That's right. So the modern world that we live in, uh, one way to explain how it is very, very different from the world that existed anywhere before World War II or really before, say, the 1980s or 1990s, is this thing you keep hearing about, the global supply chain. But basically, if you think of any physical good that you buy, whether it's a chair or a computer or some medical device, some article of clothing, it is made up of parts, components that were brought together from all over the world. So there might be plastic resins produced in a factory in Japan that are shipped to a factory in Taiwan and turned into some kind of usable plastic case that's then shipped to South Korea to be the housing for a computer chip that's then shipped to China where it's assembled with a whole bunch of other products. Even simple things like plush toys or a pencil Is going to be made up of products that are brought together from all over the world. So if you think of any big manufacturer like Apple or Nike or IBM or whoever it might be, they probably know an awful lot about what they call their tier one suppliers. Those are the people who they directly buy from. But Tier 2, which means the people those people buy from, and Tier 3, which is the people those people buy from, and it can get down to Tier 5, they know nothing about the further out it goes. And so when you see any kind of disruption, like the Fukushima nuclear disaster in Japan, which disrupted global supply chains, or the tsunami in Indonesia, or other moments where there's some crisis somewhere in the world— and it disrupts the local supply chain, it can ripple out in very unexpected ways throughout the world. I remember 20 years ago, there was one fire at a factory that made a particular type of light bulb, and it devastated projector sales for years.
1: So then how is what's happening in Wuhan affecting the supply chain as we see it in America?
2: So the disease, COVID-19, happened to sprout up in uh, Hubei province in China and its big city of Wuhan, which some people call the Chicago of China. It's sort of this industrial business center that's central to China's plans. I mean, we in America always say, oh, China makes everything. But China is actually pushing a made in China 2025 plan to move up the value chain, to make more high-valued products in China. And Wuhan is central to that. So, Wuhan has a lot of factories that make very high-tech stuff like microchips, like fiber optic cable. They also are a pharmaceutical center. They make components that go into a lot of drugs. In some cases, we believe they're the sole suppliers of certain key components and drugs are in Wuhan. So as we understand it, most factories in Wuhan are still operating, but operating at far reduced capacity. Their workers can't Show up, they're having to act more slowly. Crucially, they're not able to do the kind of quality control you need for high quality goods because that often involves a lot of shipping back and forth, moving back and forth of quality assurance experts from other places, sometimes from other countries. And so, you know, companies in America are not flying their executives, their QA people to Wuhan right now. So Wuhan alone could be one of these locations that creates this global supply chain problem. The Food and Drug Administration in the U.S. has said there are 20 drugs, they didn't say which drugs, that are likely to be impacted just by Wuhan alone, and that there's already a shortage of one drug, although they wouldn't say which drug, but a crucial drug for some number of people that's already impacted. But the real concern is not just Wuhan. The real concern is this spreads more fully throughout China and then spreads more fully throughout essentially the manufacturing centers of the world, which include, of course, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, Bangladesh, et cetera, et cetera. And as it spreads and as it spreads with uncertainty, as factories slow down, as factories shut down, as public transportation systems shut down and workers can't get to their jobs, it's... um, really impossible to predict. I mean, we, we companies did respond to Fukushima specifically and to some other local disasters by making a more global supply chain. So they're not so dependent on any single place. But that's what's really concerning from a business standpoint with a global pandemic. If it's everywhere, you can't protect yourself from problems everywhere.
0: So does that mean if the global supply chain is severely disrupted, are we going to head into another recession in the United States and possibly around the world?
2: It is very possible. And uh, and and again, we have uncertainty about when and if and how long and how bad. So lately, we have thought about what we call demand-led economic shocks. People, demand meaning people don't want to buy stuff because they're worried about the future because they either are laid off or are afraid of being laid off. This would be, at least at first, what we call a supply shock, meaning people might want to buy a new computer or a new camera or some medicine, but they can't because the company can't make it. A short supply shock is usually not that big a deal because, you know, if, if you want that new computer or camera or whatever, you're just if you have to wait a few weeks or a few months, you're still going to buy it. There's not um, a permanent loss of, of, of that transfer. It, it can be in some cases. Where where things would get much scarier is, first of all, if that supply shock lasts longer, if it's more equally spread around the world. And then if it leads to companies realizing, oh, we're not going to be able to sell stuff, so we have to start laying people off. We, we're not just shutting factories because of... Um, an illness we're going to shut factories because for economic reasons because we can't afford to keep them open and that starts creating a demand shock where people either lose their jobs or are worried about losing their jobs and they stop buying things now we've been through many many demand shocks we've we've had lots of mild recessions where people kind of lose confidence for a while and then it comes back the concern is right now we are still, believe it or not, um, using a ton of tools, the Federal Reserve, the tax policy, government spending, both in the U.S. And, and central banks around the world and governments around the world. We're still recovering from the financial crisis of 12 years ago, and we don't have a lot of tools available. So if there were to be a deep demand-led recession, it would be probably be harder than usual for government to step in and kind of boost demand and get us back on track. Although I should emphasize, we are still in the land of uncertainty. There was already a lot of views that we are heading towards a recession, a global recession. China's growth has been quite bad for China. Europe has been uh, growing very, very slowly, and they both seem very easily tipped into something like a recession fairly quickly. But I should remind you, yes, the last recession we went through was really bad. Um, But most recessions, you know, can last a little while. They can create higher-than-normal unemployment, but they're not all disasters,
0: Yeah. So how are we going to know all of this, Adam? You said that there is uncertainty, but you said the stock market loves risk. So where's the where's the balance between there? Where do we go from here?
2: So there's some basic stuff that hopefully we'll know very soon. We'll know not just for economic reasons, but for just, you know, human safety reasons. We're going to have a better sense of how infectious this disease is, what its death rate is. We're going to have a sense of whether or not governments and international agencies are really stepping up in a good way or not. And that information will be really helpful in placing a better context. Are we heading towards more a best case or more a worst case or most likely somewhere in the middle? We'll also get a better sense through time at precisely how the spread of this disease is impacting the supply chain and therefore companies and therefore our jobs and our livelihood. But I would not suggest paying a lot of attention to the stock market as a bellwether of how we're doing. The stock market is sort of engineered to overreact positively and negatively to everything. So I'd recommend ignoring the stock market, certainly on a daily basis, um, and tune in to this show or other trusted sources of more sensible, long-looking economic information.
0: Thanks so much, Adam.
2: Thank you, guys.
0: Well, Emily, we did
1: it. That was the first episode of Viral. It's true, it was our first episode, but we're not done. We'll be following the story as it moves. Look back in your feed later this week for new episodes.
0: I'm your host, TJ Raphael. For updates in the meantime,
1: you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at TJ Raphael, just like the Ninja Turtle. And I'm reporter Emily Saul. Uh, You can follow me on Twitter as well. That's Emily underscore Saul underscore. Although I'm not much of a tweeter, so I would actually recommend you follow the CDC and WHO for further updates. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening.
0: Viral Coronavirus is a 3 Uncanny 4 production. Rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. It helps listeners like you find us. Our senior producer is Lana Richards. Our associate producer is Rahima Nasa. Additional help this week from Dan Bobkoff, Shane McKeon, Adam Davidson, Laura Mayer, and Jack Panyard.